I'm Lisa Stone, and you are listening to Season 8 of Parenting Aces. Welcome to Season 8 of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we have another great episode for you this week. My guest is Marianne Wardell, a former top U.S. junior player, a top collegiate player from Stanford and a top professional player who is now a mom, a tennis coach, very involved in USTA and USPTA, and just an all-around great person who has some wonderful insights into this whole junior tennis thing and and college tennis thing. And what spurred this conversation, this episode of the podcast, was an article that Marianne had published on her website about Tony Nadal and how he developed his nephew Rafa into a champion and the things that were important to him during Rafa's development. And I won't spoil it by going into that here, but I do urge you to check out the show notes and click the link to Tony Nadal's TED Talk and also the link to Marianne's article on that TED Talk. They are both super, super enlightening. I am just so thrilled to bring you this episode. Also thrilled to have all of you that have decided to take the plunge and become premium members of ParentingAces.com. I hope you're enjoying the various benefits that you get as a premium member, including our new weekly e-newsletter. If you're not getting the newsletter, that's because you haven't become a premium member yet. So what are you waiting for? Hopefully you'll get signed up and join us there. Also, I want to just remind you that we do have a webinar coming up for our premium members this week, July 7th. So uh, if you haven't signed up to become a premium member, you might want to do that so you can take part in our webinar, as well as get a discount on our upcoming parent recruiting panel that we are doing as part of the WTCA conference in New York to kick off the U.S. Open this year. So check out again the show notes for the link to join us. And in the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Marianne Wardell. Marianne Wardell, thank you so much for joining us this week. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Well, you have had a very rich life so far, and it hasn't stopped yet um, in tennis. And so as usual, I when I have a first timer on the show, I like to give our audience a little bit of background on you and your life in tennis. So tell us about your junior tennis years and, and move us through from there. Uh, great. Um, I grew up in Southern California in Bakersfield, kind of the Central Valley, which uh, our club had a lot of really good players, Keith Fister and Dennis Ralston, uh, Camille Benjamin, and a few others. So it was a great place to grow up, you know, playing junior tennis. Um, I, I had a really good junior career, especially early on in the younger age groups, and was able to win 19 national titles. Um, my junior year of high school, I moved to Voluntaries in Florida because I was just running out of people kind of to practice with and things like that at home. Um, went from there to play at Stanford for one year and then turned pro after that and kind of you know, really enjoyed 11 full years or so on the tour. 
Fantastic. And now you're coaching, you're a mom, you're a blogger, you're so busy. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, primary job is definitely a mom of three boys. And um, as they got older and I had more time, I started getting back into, into tennis, Ninja Junior Tennis, working with a few girls here in San Diego. And, you know, it's one of those things when you go back to the tournaments and you see that a lot of things, I mean, are obviously drastically different than my day, but at the same time, a lot of things had continued. Um, I had a very, very challenging relationship with my mother, uh, who was kind of a very typical, you know, the stereotype of a tennis mom. Um, and I was very stubborn, kind of independent kid. So the combination was not always pretty. Um, but, you know, when you, when I got back involved and I saw that dynamic continuing, it was just kind of heartbreaking for me. So I started kind of changing my focus from being on court with kids to really doing more parent education. I do some parent education for the USTA um, and just here locally and then started writing articles to try and you know, just stop that cycle and try and have some healthier family relationships around the junior tennis. If it's not too personal, could you share a couple of things that stand out in your mind about your relationship with your mom during your junior tennis? Sure. Um, It was just kind of an overall expectation of perfection. Um, you were expected every time you went on the court that everything was going to go perfectly and you were going to do everything well. The, there was never much reinforcement on the things that you did well, but as soon as I came off the court, it was you missed X amount of forehands, you made this amount of errors. Um, you know, I remember vividly one time I came off the court, there's a big tournament in Southern California called Ojai. And it was my freshman year at Stanford. And I had won whatever division it was that I was in. And I won my finals. I think it was six, three, six, one or something like that came off. And it was, you know, I was happy. I had won the match and I, my tennis wasn't great. My freshman year at Stanford, I had a very difficult time balancing the tennis and the academics. Um, it was very challenging for me. So well, I came off the court and I was happy. One, um, and it was, my mom was there and it was just an immediate, you missed, you know, X amount of forehands and you should have done this and you should have done that. And she didn't deserve to get, you know, four games off you. And it was just that constant um, pointing out the negatives and never the positives. Um, And then I remember one time when I was on the tour and coming back home to visit and my ranking had dropped and it was in kind of, you know, the highs and lows of playing on the tour. It was on one of my lows. I was actually about to get married. It was maybe four or five months before I was going to get married. So I was trying to decide, do I want to keep playing or do I not want to keep playing? Um, And I had come home because we were doing wedding plans and things like that and my mom actually asked me not to come out to our club because she was embarrassed that my ranking had dropped and, you know, it had dropped from, I don't know, 30 to 80 in the world or something like that. Ouch. So, yeah. So it was just, she was, she was tough, but there's definitely been times, 
you know, kind of later in life now, she died 16 years ago of uh, ALS. And now looking back and now that I'm a parent, I can see why she did certain things. It might not have been the best way to go about it, but, you know, no one, we all make mistakes as parents. Um, But having that upbringing, I was also very tough for other bumps in the road that have come in life. And, you know, so you, you find yourself as much as, as hard as it was, you know, also thanking them for it. And how do you kind of use your experience and your relationship with your mom to kind of shape your relationship with your own children and your parenting style? Um, I think in general, people tend to either model how their parents parented or do the opposite. Um, my ex-husband was a baseball player. So my, my children have had, um, I would say a lot of expectations on them growing up with academics and sports. You know, when you have two parents who both were on scholarship at Stanford and then both played professionally, people look at your children like they're automatically supposed to do that. Um, So I think my ex-husband and I, we went about it. We exposed them to all different sports. We tried to see where they excelled, what they enjoyed, what they wanted to do. Um, We had a really tough time with my oldest one because he was a baseball player, very, very good baseball player. And then in high school kind of time, decided he did, he was just burned out just too much and switched to lacrosse, which um, in our house was kind of like going to the dark side. Uh, <laughs> then my next one was interesting. My next one was a golfer all, you know, all the way through middle, you know, elementary school, middle school. His goal was to play golf at Stanford. Um, that was what he wanted to do. And he got into eighth grade and realized, okay, well, I might have to homeschool. I might not be able to play basketball anymore. Going into high school, I think I want to try football. And as a parent, you hear the word football and you cringe. And I kept thinking, okay, well, it's freshman year in high school. And and he's extraordinarily stubborn. He's definitely my mini-me. So I said, okay, fine. I'll let him try it, right? He's not going to like it. And then we'll be done with it. Well, you know, now he's playing football at Wash U in St. Louis. And it's has stuck and it was by far the sport where he excelled the most. Um, so I think for me, it's, it's being open to finding what they want and not expecting them to do what I did and just trying not to push them too much. Um, if they have a goal, then, then I'll hold them accountable to that goal and make sure, you know, remind them if their decisions aren't aligning with those goals. And maybe re, you know, reevaluate and see, okay, well, maybe this isn't your goal and we need to, to switch or try something different. Um, but I just, I've definitely not pushed too hard. Um, you know, uh, with the first ones, you always make mistakes. But, and I remember when my first one with his learning disabilities and some other things, and this time when he was switching from baseball and, I was seeing a doctor for his uh, testing uh, for academic and social. And the doctor just said the best thing to me that I actually ended up writing it on a note card and sticking it on my mirror. But he said, you need to take your foot off his gas pedal. And it was, 
that I love that. Yeah, it was like, yeah. okay, that I get. Yeah, <laughs> this journey. This is his ride. You, you know, you, you got to take your foot off it. So um, that was, and that that's it's not easy for people who are kind of Type A driven, busy achievers. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a pretty brilliant motto, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah, I may need to use that. Um, <laughs> so the way that this podcast episode came about is you recently published an article on Tony Nadal and how he worked with Rafa through Rafa's childhood and helped shape Rafa into the champion that he is today. And there were some things that jumped out at you after listening to Tony's Ted talk, which I will have a link to in the show notes. So those of you listening, please check out the show notes on parentingaces.com. So you'll get that link. But what made you connect to that Ted talk? What was it that you saw or heard that made you go, Oh my gosh, I, I need to write about this. Uh, I'm Lisa Stone, and you are listening to Season 8 of Parenting Aces. Welcome to Season 8 of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we have another great episode for you this week. My guest is Marianne Wardell, a former top U.S. junior player, a top collegiate player from Stanford and a top professional player who is now a mom, a tennis coach, very involved in USTA and USPTA, and just an all-around great person who has some wonderful insights into this whole junior tennis thing and, and college tennis thing. And what spurred this conversation, this episode of the podcast, was an article that Marianne had published on her website about Tony Nadal and how he developed his nephew Rafa into a champion and the things that were important to him during Rafa's development. And I won't spoil it by going into that here, but I do urge you to check out the show notes and click the link to Tony Nadal's Ted talk and also the link to Marianne's article on that Ted talk. They are both super, super enlightening. I am just so thrilled to bring you this episode. Also thrilled to have all of you that have decided to take the plunge and become premium members of ParentingAces.com. I hope you're enjoying the various benefits that you get as a premium member, including our new weekly e-newsletter. If you're not getting the newsletter, that's because you haven't become a premium member yet. So what are you waiting for? Hopefully you'll get signed up and join us there. Also, I want to just remind you that we do have a webinar coming up for our premium members this week, July 7th. So uh, if you haven't signed up to become a premium member, you might want to do that so you can take part in our webinar, as well as get a discount on our upcoming parent recruiting panel that we are doing as part of the WTCA conference in New York to kick off the U.S. Open this year. So check out, again, the show notes for the link to join us. And in the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Marianne Wardell. 
Marianne Wardell, thank you so much for joining us this week. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Well, you have had a very rich life so far, and it hasn't stopped yet um, in tennis. And so, as usual, I when I have a first timer on the show, I like to give our audience a little bit of background on you and your life in tennis. So, tell us about your junior tennis years and and move us through from there. Uh, great. Um, I grew up in Southern California in Bakersfield, kind of the Central Valley, which uh, our club had a lot of really good players, Kate Fister and Dennis Ralston, uh, Camille Benjamin, and a few others. So it was a great place to grow up, you know, playing junior tennis. Um, I, I had a really good junior career, especially early on in the younger age groups, and was able to win 19 national titles. Um, my junior year of high school, I moved to Boletaries in Florida because I was just running out of people kind of to practice with and things like that at home. Um, went from there to play at Stanford for one year and then turned pro after that and kind of you know, really enjoyed 11 full years or so on the tour. Fantastic. And now you're coaching, you're a mom, you're a blogger, you're so busy. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, primary job is definitely a mom of three boys. And um, as they got older and I had more time, I started getting back into, into tennis, ninja junior tennis, working with a few girls here in San Diego. And, you know, it's one of those things when you go back to the tournaments and you see that a lot of things, I mean, are obviously drastically different than my day, but at the same time, a lot of things had continued. Um, I had a very, very challenging relationship with my mother, uh, who was kind of a very typical, you know, the stereotype of a tennis mom. Um, and I was very stubborn, kind of independent kid. So the combination was not always pretty. Um, but, you know, when, you, when I got back involved and I saw that, dynamic continuing. It was just kind of heartbreaking for me. So I started kind of changing my focus from being on court with kids to really doing more parent education. I do some parent education for the USDA um, and just here locally and then started writing articles to try and, you know, just stop that cycle and try and have some healthier family relationships around the junior tennis. If it's not too personal, could you share a couple of things that stand out in your mind about your relationship with your mom during your junior tennis? Sure. Um, It was just kind of an overall expectation of perfection. Um, You were expected every time you went on the court that everything was going to go perfectly and you were going to do everything well. The there was never much reinforcement on the things that you did well, but as soon as I came off the court, it was you missed X amount of forehands, you made this amount of errors. Um, you know, I remember vividly one time I came off the court. There's a big tournament in Southern California called Ojai, and it was my freshman year at Stanford, and I had won whatever division it was that I was in. And I won my finals, I think it was six three, six one or something like that. Came off and it was 
you know, I was happy. I had won the match and I, my tennis wasn't great. My freshman year at Stanford, I had a very difficult time balancing the tennis and the academics. Um, it was very challenging for me. So when I came off the court and I was happy, won, um, and it was, my mom was there and it was just an immediate, you missed you know, X amount of forehands and you should have done this and you should have done that. And she didn't deserve to get, you know, four games off you. And it was just that constant um, pointing out the negatives and never the positives. Um, And then I remember one time when I was on the tour and coming back home to visit and my ranking had dropped and it was in kind of, you know, the highs and lows of playing on the tour. It was on one of my lows I was actually about to get married. It was maybe four or five months before I was going to get married. So I was trying to decide, do I want to keep playing or do I not want to keep playing? Um, And I had come home because we were doing wedding plans and things like that. And my mom actually asked me not to come out to our club because she was embarrassed that my ranking had dropped. And, you know, it had dropped from, I don't know, 30 to 80 in the world or something like that. Ouch. Yeah. So it was just, she was, she was tough, but there's definitely been times, you know, kind of later in life now, she died 16 years ago of uh, ALS. And now looking back, and now that I'm a parent, I can see why she did certain things It might not have been the best way to go about it. But, you know, no one, we all make mistakes as parents. Um but having that upbringing, I was also very tough for other bumps in the road that have come in life. And, you know, so you, you find yourself as much as, as hard as it was, you know, also thanking them for it. And how do you kind of use your experience and your relationship with your mom to kind of shape your relationship with your own children and your parenting style? Um, I think in general, people tend to either model how their parents parented or do the opposite. Um, my ex-husband was a baseball player. So my, my children have had, um, I would say a lot of expectations on them growing up with academics and sports. You know, when you have two parents who both were on scholarship at Stanford and then both played professionally people look at your children like they're automatically supposed to do that. Um, So I think my ex-husband and I, we went about it. We exposed them to all different sports. We tried to see where they excelled, what they enjoyed, what they wanted to do. Um, We had a really tough time with my oldest one because he was a baseball player, very, very good baseball player. And then in high school kind of time, decided he did he was just burned out just too much and switched to lacrosse which um in our house was kind of like going to the dark side uh and my next one was interesting my next one was a golfer all you know all the way through middle you know elementary school middle school his goal was to play golf at stanford um that was what he wanted to do and he got into eighth grade and realized okay well I might have to homeschool. I might not be able to play basketball anymore. Going into high school, I think I want to try football. And as a parent, you hear the word football and you cringe. And I kept thinking, okay, well, it's freshman year in high school. 
and, and he's extraordinarily stubborn. He's definitely my mini me. So I said, okay, fine. I'll let him try it. Right. He's not going to like it. And then we'll be done with it. Well, you know, now he's playing football at Wash U in St. Louis and it's has stuck. And it was by far the sport where he excelled the most. Um, so I think for me, it's, it's being open to finding what they want and not expecting them to do what I did and just trying not to push them too much. Um, if they have a goal, then, then I'll hold them accountable to that goal and make sure, you know, remind them if their decisions aren't aligning with those goals and maybe re, you know, reevaluate and see, okay, well, maybe this isn't your goal and we need to, to switch or try something different. Um, but I just, I've definitely not pushed too hard. Um, you know, uh, with the first ones, you always make mistakes. But, and I remember when my first one with he has learning disabilities and some other things. And this time when he was switching from baseball and I was seeing a doctor for his uh, testing uh, for academic and social. And the doctor just said the best thing to me that I actually ended up writing it on a note card and sticking it on my mirror. But he said, you need to take your foot off his gas pedal. Ooh. And it was, that I love that. Was, yeah. It was like, yeah. okay, that I get Yeah, <laughs> journey. This is his ride. You, you know, you, you gotta take your foot off it. So um, that was, and that that's, it's not easy for people who are kind of type A driven, busy achievers. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a uh, pretty brilliant motto actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. I may need to use that. Um, <laughs> so the way that this podcast episode came about is you recently published an article on Tony Nadal and how he worked with Rafa through Rafa's childhood and helped shape Rafa into the champion that he is today. And there were some things that jumped out at you after listening to Tony's Ted talk, which I will have a link to in the show notes. So those of you listening, please check out the show notes on parentingaces.com. So you'll get that link. But I, what made you connect to that Ted talk? What was it that you saw or heard that made you go, Oh my gosh, I, I need to write about this. Um, I think that one of the things that I feel the most passionately about with having had the benefit of playing competitive uh, tennis and especially junior tennis in those formative years are all the skills that playing tennis gives you later in life as a person. So, you know, even if you have a very successful career and you play tennis and let's say until you're 30 years old, uh, you still have a lot of your life left. And so how can you take those skills to later in life? Um, we, I would think it's five or six years ago, we had a reunion at the girls nationals and we kind of invited back anyone who had won the hard courts in 16s and 18s. And it was, it, it was primarily people from seventies, eighties, nineties, I would say. And it uh, was fascinating because one of the things we did is we went around the table and just said, well, you know, what did tennis do for you? Um, 
And it's all these character traits that Tony was talking about. So I think that's mainly why it resonated with me. And a lot of the things that he was talking about, some of the danger zones where parents and coaches can go, actually robs the kids of coming out of it with these traits, which is what you want. Um, yeah, and I think it's just his philosophy of, you know, first raising a, um, a person, you're raising a child with the character trait and the tennis player, the athlete is next mm-hmm. because anything that they learn from these character traits will help them as an athlete, but it's not necessarily vice versa. Right. Right. And so specifically, which character traits were you know, kind of common threads through the people that came back to that reunion in San Diego? Um, it was de- like the resilience or the perseverance, as Tony called it. Um, we all felt like we could deal with difficult things and difficult challenges. And you just looked at it. You know, we're very goal oriented. And so any challenge in life, you looked at it. Okay, how can I tackle it? Um, and you went about doing it. We're also not afraid to ask for help. We're used to having coaches, parents, everybody tell us what to do, how to do it, when to do it. So I think we take advice um, very well. And we know that there's different ways to doing things. Um, you know, it's by some was time management, right? You're busy, you're juggling school and tennis and all these other things. It was another one, anger management. <laughs> you learn how to kind of suck it up and control your anger, um, things like that. But it's, and a lot of it is respect. Um, you have a lot of people helping you along the way. Nowadays in the pros, you see the teams around the players, but in our day, you didn't. Um, so there's coaches, there's trainers, there's tournament directors, there's WTA staff, there's, you know, all of those people around that are there to kind of for the well-oiled machine so you can do what you do. And I think you just have a tremendous respect for those around you. Um, I think another big one is respect for people from different cultures, different parts of the world, different religions, different sexual orientations, whatever it is, you have this common bond of tennis. Um, And that kind of overrides any other differences that you might have outside it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think for all of us, it was, it was the per- perseverance. It makes you tough. Um, you know, you don't get through junior tennis, college tennis, pro tennis, whatever it is without being a, a pretty tough person. Well, I mean, I think that's so true. And I, you know, we hear that a lot that, you know, tennis is a sport for life and the lessons that you learn on the court, can be taken off the court, that tennis is a microcosm of life. Um, You know, we hear all of those phrases kind of thrown about pretty regularly. But one of the things that I found so interesting about Tony Nadal's relationship with Rafa and his TED Talk and then your interpretation of that was this whole idea of the tennis player really is so secondary to the human being. And I think as parents, a lot of us lose sight of that. And so I would love for you to elaborate on 
what we can do as parents to avoid having our kids when they're, you know, adults in their 40s and 50s um, regretting their relationships with us and instead being able to look back and say, wow, you know, my parents really got it right. Um, oh, gosh, you know, if, if we all had that, that magic uh, as we go through it, because there's, I don't think any parent gets through it without. Um, well, but, <laughs> without but your kids are, but, right, but your kids are yeah. older now, my kids are older now. And so we kind of have the benefit of hindsight, right, at this point, yeah. and we can look back and I mean, you still have one in high school, but um, I think, I, you know, for for the parents listening to be able to hear from people who are kind of on the back end of this whole journey with raising children can be really valuable. And it's not yeah. to say that they're going to take every bit of advice that they're offered. But of course, you know, from somebody like you who has not only been in the trenches herself as a player, but has been in the trenches as a, the parent of an athlete, I think what you have to say carries a lot of weight and value. Yeah. You know, I think the main thing, or there's a couple of, of key points. One is just not to kind of coddle and enable and do things for them to make their journey easier. Um, you know, don't look for the weakest tournaments that they can get through and don't avoid playing certain players. Um, I think, you know, the, the skill of winning tournaments, it is a skill and it's really hard to be seated at the top of the draw and hold the trophy at the end of the week. Um, and that is one of, the best uh, kind of skills that the kids can learn. Uh, so when you constantly move them up or move them around in draws and tournaments so that they're not seated one, so the pressure's not on them, you're really robbing them of one of the benefits of junior tennis. Uh, just, you know, holding them accountable for what's in their racket bag, their, their water, their electrolyte drinks, their bars, whatever it is. Um, you know, giving them, making sure that they have the skills to be independent, to be responsible, uh, and take control of that. The more that we do it as they get older and older, the less able that they are to do it themselves. Um, and then I think one of the main things is, as a parent is just to model the behavior. One of the ways our kids learn is to see how we handle things. So if we're modeling the behavior of respect, to the coaches, to the tournament director, to the umpires, to the staff around, to the people at the club, whatever it is, kids see that. If kids see you berating an umpire or a tournament director because you don't like the schedule, they see that and they think that that's okay. Um, you know, we want the kids to be able to go out to a tennis tournament and to have those other kids that they're playing be their best friends. You know, this is something that they have in common with these kids that other kids at school don't have. Um, so, you know, model it and be friends with the kids' parents. Um, you know, my mom used to go and after my matches, she had a, there was a running group and there was four or five of them who would take off and they would go on runs together. Uh, she would have coffee with them, different things like that. But as much as it's a journey for your child through junior tennis, it's a journey for the parent too. 
and nobody else other than the parents of the players can understand the challenges and how hard it is and what you're going through. So I would say if you can model that behavior and have those relationships at tournaments, then your kids see that um, as well. And with the behavior, the sportsmanship, things like that, I think parents need to have a zero tolerance early on. I think early on, if you see the bad behavior, you've got to stop it. You've got to yank them off the court. Um, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to do, but the earlier you do it, the easier it is. As the kids get older and older, that disrespectful behavior just gets more ingrained in them and more accepted. Um, you know, I had some times, I never was able to kind of misbehave on the court. My, my parents would never have, have tolerated anything like that. But I was very disrespectful to my mom when she was feed, she would feed balls to me and things like that. And she was very tough and I was very tough back. Um, and extraordinarily disrespectful to her at times with that. But she allowed it. And I kind of, for me, I knew that I almost had the power in that situation because I knew that me hitting tennis balls was more important to her than it was to me. So she wasn't going to stop. She wasn't going to do some of the things that maybe a parent should have done because my practice was too important to her um, rather than seeing that that disrespectful behavior should have been what was the most important. Um, And, you know, sometimes too, I think helping, it helps to compare it to what they do in school. You know, if, if you see them cheat on a, on the court in a match, would you let them cheat on a test in math? No. So it's the same thing. Um, the way they are disrespectful to an umpire or their coach, would you let them do it to their teacher? No. So we need to make sure that because they're both learning experiences. You know, the tennis court is another classroom, which is the classroom in life and, and for tennis. So I think modeling the behavior and holding them accountable um, is a big thing. And just as early on as you can do it, because the older they get, the, the tougher it is. <laughs> That's for sure. You know, one of the things that jumped out at me in, in Tony's TED Talk was this whole idea of being held accountable, taking responsibility. And he tells a story of Rafa playing a match, getting down five love. And somebody says to Tony, I think he's playing with a broken racket. And so Tony Mm -hmm. goes down to the court and says to Rafa, you know, I think your racket's broken. And so Rafa switches the racket and, Ends up losing the match, but but it winds up being a much closer match. And afterwards, Tony was like, I don't understand. You you know, you've been playing tennis for years. How does somebody with your experience not notice that the racket's broken? And Rafa's was, response was, well, you've always taught me not to blame anybody but myself for my play. So it didn't even occur to me to check to see if my racket was broken. I just figured I was playing badly, and that's why I was down <laughs> at five. <laughs> I thought yeah. that was so brilliant. Um, yeah. And I, I, I love that, that lesson, and you see that. I mean, to me, that's one of the things I love about watching Rafael Nadal play is – that sense that 
he's never going to blame somebody else. He's never going to be, you know, blaming things on his racket, blaming things on the balls, blaming things on the opponent, whatever the court conditions. Um, and I, I wonder how you feel about that whole kind of trait of teaching a kid to accept personal responsibility and how we as parents can do a better job of instilling that in our kids instead of this whole entitlement culture that we seem to be living in right now. Yeah. In, in that same story, I loved the, um, the sign that Tony had made and put up at the club that was, you know, no excuses ever won, won you a match. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's always interesting, right? That, it, you know, it was really windy. Oh, it must have only been windy on your side of the court. Right, um, right. So, you know, and I think it just goes back to the things that make you tough. And excuses never help anyone. Um, you know, I remember coming off the court one time and, and saying to my mom, you know, I thought I had lost this match because the girl had some questionable calls and things like that. And my mom's response was, well, if you think she's going to give you bad calls, you better not hit it close to the line. It's like, there you okay go. Then. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was kind of brought up in a house where we weren't necessarily allowed to complain. Um, if you, there was something you didn't like, my mom would, would say, well, can you change it? If you can change it, then stop complaining and change it. If you can't change it, then fuck up and deal with it. Mm-hmm. And buck up and deal was one of her one of her main mottos. Um, but I, you, you just you can't blame. Nothing in life is going to be perfect. Very rarely are things going to be perfect, and you just have to deal with it. Uh, I think one of my main one of the things that really just burns me is when kids blame losing a match on a bad call. Oh, they cheated, or oh, they this, or oh, they that. Well, that that cost you one point. So if that one point cost you the entire match or maybe made you lose four or five points after that, that's on you. They can take one point from you, but you know, how, how you react and how you handle it is, is what is the outcome. Um, So the, the blaming and the excuses is, it's not a great trait as an adult. So the sooner, you know, you stop it as a child, the, the better off they are. And I think it just helps. So I guess when your child starts complaining about something, just try and turn it on them and say, well, how can you, what can you do about it? What can you do about it? What did you learn from it? How can you change it? So it won't, won't happen again. I mean, I'm sure you hear the same stuff I hear, which is, you know, our American kids have gotten soft. They don't compete hard. They don't practice hard. They just expect everything to be given to them. How do you feel when you hear that? Well, I don't think it's necessarily all that inaccurate, um, nor is it anything new. In my generation, you know, we went through a lull of having Americans at the top. And there, you know, was a huge kind of surge of Russian and Eastern European players, and they were hungrier for it. They wanted it. You know, their lives were much more, much more difficult and much more challenging. Um, so I don't, you know, I think it's a, it's just a, a problem with the generation overall. I think we do 
way too much for our kids, and I am certainly one of them. Um, you know, you're struggling in AP U.S. history. Well, you know, instead of saying, okay, well, let's drop you down into regular history, it's okay, well, we'll have a tutor twice a week to make sure you get through a push and, you know, oh, you want to play soccer. Well, you must need private lessons. And I think as parents, we just fall into that trap. Um, and it's much easier, right, uh, to, for them to sign them up for a tennis clinic than it is to manage or for the kids to manage setting up practice matches and all the other things that they really should be doing over a lot of those clinics. Um, so it's, I think it's just a difficult, difficult dynamic in, in families nowadays across the board. It's not just tennis. Mm-hmm. You know, in last week's episode, I interviewed my dad and one of the things that he pointed out that he's seen watching me go through the junior development process with my son is that we've taken the sport away from the kids. You know, parents now own it rather than the kids owning it. When you were coming up, did you feel you owned your tennis? Definitely. Very definitely. Um, You know, I was the one, I had to set up all my practice matches. I had one lesson a week with my coach. I had the same coach from when I was seven until I was 16. Um, it, it was it was all on me. It was up to me. Uh, you know, we went to tournaments. I had my mom with me or my dad with me. My older sister also played and, and played at Stanford. So my parents had to kind of divide and conquer when we were in different age groups. Um, but nowadays you go to tournaments, all the coaches who are there, they're microman. The coaches are setting up practice matches and making sure, you know, five different kids have water bottles and this and that. And it's, um, it's, it's definitely a very different environment and I much preferred the way I went through it. That's for sure. Yeah. And now that you're involved from the coaching side, I mean, you're a USPTA, I think certified coach and Mm -hmm. working with USTA, how do you view your role in terms of helping to kind of change the current status of tennis and tennis ownership and give it back to the players? Um, I really, I mean, I'm a firm believer in, in all of the things that you're doing. And so to me, how the easiest way to try and change the dynamic is through education. And it's really just educating the parents, the coaches, and the kids on, um, you know, changes that can be made. You know, there's a lot of, I think a lot of parents do too much, micromanage too much. They're switching coaches too often and doing things that are, you know, kind of robbing this experience, you know, from the kids. And they're not doing it maliciously. They're not doing it on purpose. They're doing because they don't know. Um and so I really feel that the biggest piece is, is education and it's, you know, the articles that you put out, the podcast, the, you know, and giving people that parents can just call and ask a question or, um, you know, anything, they're all very well-meaning. They, it sure. just, I think, I think they just don't know and they end up doing too much. You know, they see, you know, one of the things I think, that I loved the most about my junior career was the relationship that I had with my coach. My coach, um, he was very tough. 
very demanding, but he was always there for me. He was very much a mediator between my mother and myself. Uh, he was extraordinarily supportive um, and, and tough at the same time. And so when I see kids now go from coach to coach to coach to coach because Sally just won a tournament, so now we need to go over there. Well, Jimmy, gosh, look what he's doing. So now we need to go try that coach. The the child goes through and they don't ever get that bond and they don't have that person that trusts that person to really go to, nor does the parent. So the parent's trying to take on all of this stuff that really a coach would be doing if you trusted, if you had one coach that you trusted to manage you through the process. Do you think that most junior tennis coaches have the knowledge to do that? Um, I have. I know no it's a loaded idea. question. <laughs> yeah, there certainly are. There certainly are some really, really good coaches out there, right? Um, who know their stuff. I don't know. I I'm not experienced enough to with all the coaches to know. Um, I do think that the the changes that they're making with USPTA and PTR with needing more hours for certification and more experience and things like that can only can only help. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was interesting um, to find out that USPTA doesn't test on things like the junior development pathway and the, mm. you know, the tournament structure and uh, nutrition or fitness. Um, and I, you know, I'm very hopeful that that's going to be incorporated into the education and testing as some changes are being yeah. made, but you know, for now, I think it's very difficult. And I think this is the main struggle that I hear from parents is it's so hard to find a coach that you can trust to be the lead uh, in your child's junior development process. And, and I think that's why a lot of parents feel like they have to take the reins and it's really not serving the children at all, as you know, as we've been discussing the last 45 yeah. minutes. Um, but I don't, at this point, I, I'm not sure I see a solution for families. I, and that's why I think yeah. it's, it's so helpful to hear your perspective on things, because you have been in this tennis world from, and played every role, you know, you've played junior player, college player, professional player, coach, and now parent. Um, I, I just think it's so valuable to hear your input on all of this. Oh. Yeah, it's, you know, I think if the USPTA and PTR, if they were able to add um, a level of certification or a different, you know, a different certification for that junior pathway, so parents would know who's done it and who hasn't um, and ha you know, that's at least one step of a filter. Um, but it's really difficult as a parent. You know, I think one of the, one of the danger signs for me, and there's gonna be a lot of coaches that would disagree with me, but if a coach ever said, you know, the parent's not allowed to watch a lesson, yeah, I'd go somewhere else. Um, you know, as a, as a parent with kids in other sports, you know, my son who played competitive golf for many, many years, and that's just as expensive as tennis. 
if somebody told me that I was paying $125 an hour for a lesson, but I'm not allowed to sit and watch and see what they're doing, that there's something wrong with that. And it's, it's really hard as a parent when with the financial output that you're putting in there to not know what they're doing. You know, if you were paying for private school tuition, they would never not have, you know, not have communication with you on what the kids are learning in class. Um, that doesn't mean that as a parent, you have the right to walk on the court and interfere in the lesson, but you, you most certainly should be able to be there and to watch it. Um, and that's really important. You want to know how the person interacts with your child. Are they berating them? Are they saying things that are inappropriate? Are, you know, are they positive and reinforcing good things and and can you see improvement? Um, but it, it's finding that right coach is not an easy task. But when you do, it, um, it, it really takes a load off the parent. For sure. And you talked about the fact that your coach was really tough on you. So as a parent, how do you reconcile tough and berating or, you know, where is that line? And at what point does a coach who is, you know, holding a child accountable and insisting that they own their tennis and take responsibility cross the line to become an abusive coach? Um, My coaches were always tough. Uh, That was, I had one coach (laughs) who wasn't, and it was very apparent that it was not going to be the right fit. So, you know, most of the kids who play tennis um, are very, have very strong personalities. Not all of them, but most of them do because it's the sport just kind of breeds that. How many other kids are going to walk out on a tennis court by themselves uh, on their own if they're, they don't have a certain level of toughness and confidence and things like that? So if I'm a firm believer that the coach always needs to be stronger than the student. Um, otherwise, as soon as the student runs the show, the, the player runs the show, you're done. So I always liked you know, very firm, very tough coaches. My coach the last few years when I was on the tour, Woody Blocker, I mean, he's known as a screamer. I mean, the guy screams throughout lessons, but never once is it negative. Never once. It's always something positive. Great job. One more. You're almost there. You almost got it. A little more of this, a little more of that, but never is he saying, you know, the the negative part. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my coaches and my my parents as well were always very tough on the behavior and on the effort. So my coach was good at knowing it isn't always going to be perfect. Um, but did you try your hardest? Did you have a good attitude? Did you, you know, were you productive? Um, things like that. So that is, you know, I have a, a rule, in, at least in our house, when we're coming home from a sporting event, whatever the kids were doing on the car ride home, I d- I'm not allowed to talk about it. I don't talk about it. Um, is that, that a rule? Is that a rule yeah, you set I, or yep, your kids set? Yep, I, okay. I did. I did. Okay. That was, you know, the, the car ride home after a bad match playing tennis, that is a, every kid's worst nightmare. 
Yeah. Every kid's worst nightmare. There have been lots of so, articles written about that car ride home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, maybe it's like the nausea comes back even just thinking about it. But the one time when I will talk about it is if the sportsmanship wasn't good. If the behavior, the sportsmanship, body language, all that kind of stuff, that's all fair game. Um, because that needs to be nipped in the bud and dealt with right away. Um Okay, but so let me it, ask you, did you have the conversation ever with your kids outside of a sporting event to say, all right, here's here's the deal. We're not going to talk about your performance, if you won or lost, or how well or poorly you played, but if you misbehave out there, you better believe we're going to be talking about that. We did, um, but of course you... <laughs> you have the conversation because you made the mistake Uh Um, or I made the mistake as a parent. So one of my boys at a baseball game, there was, um, it was a bench clearing brawl. And so you had all these boys, um, it was freshman year in high school. I I mean, one of the coaches was ejected. It was just, it was an awful situation. Um, and so me as the parent sitting on the sidelines, I want to know, how. okay, how did this start? Because you, you can kind of see it build up as the game went on. And you, but so in the car and I'm just absolutely drilling my son. Well, what about this? And what about this, this, this? And he just, he wasn't saying a word. It was dead silence. So finally I'm getting annoyed. And I looked at him, I said, can you help me here? I'm trying to figure this out. And he looked at me deadpan. What makes you think I want to talk about this right now? Oh, was like, good for him. <laughs> okay. I get that. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm doing all those things I swore I'd never do. So, yeah. So then the, the dinner conversation was, I'm sorry. I get it. And how about we, you know, kind of come up with some some guidelines here. So, um it's, but it, I think it was he, two years ago or so. My sisters, we were we were all together on a family vacation, and you know, and you're kind of reminiscing about the tennis. And it was interesting with there were three of us with the tennis, and my older sister, with my mom being tough, you know, it she looked she looks at junior tennis probably as you know child labor, and it was just not an experience that she enjoyed. I thrived on it. And my younger sister just avoided it and said, I'm, I'm not going there. Um, <laughs> and we were talking about our car rides home and with my mom. And we lived in Bakersfield. So all of our lessons, all of our tournaments were mostly in Los Angeles. That's a two-hour drive home. Ugh. You know, what we would have done for, you know, the little discreet AirPod or something to be able to, to tune it out, you know, would have been priceless back then. So if you if my mom took us to a tournament on the way home, it was two hours of just constant what you did wrong and what everybody else did right and all, you know, all everything. And with my dad, it was dead silence the entire way home. So we always thought it was silent treatment. And we're at this dinner and my dad's looking at us. He goes, silent treatment. He goes, I had a teenage girl in tears. I didn't know what the hell to say. What was I supposed to say? So I just didn't say anything. So we were sitting here thinking, oh my God, for 40 years, we've been thinking he gave us the silent treatment. So all of a sudden it dawned on me. It's like, okay, if you have these conversations, then your kids know 
it's like, it, okay, I, we won't talk about it. <laughs> but right. I'm not giving you the silent treatment. So, you know, it's just on both sides. It's just, it's, I, I just thought it was really funny, but it, it's just not an easy journey. There's no, no it is not. It is not. So after going back through and reading your article um, about Tony Nadal, I'm, I'm circling back to, <laughs> to where we started <laughs> here. Um, what to you was the biggest takeaway The perseverance part, the, you know, or his three, the three essentials, you know, that he called effort, sacrifice, and discipline. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy for the kids and it certainly isn't easy for the parents. Um, And I think it, 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 it's hard work. Um, It takes a lot and you sacrifice a lot to go through it financially you know, socially for the kids. And, you know, my kids were appalled that I had never gone to my high school prom or something. And I said, well, it was always during the junior French open. So I kind of chose the French open over the prom and I would do it again. And, you know, any time, but not all kids think that way. Um, so it's, you know, it's not an easy journey, but life isn't an easy journey. And they have an opportunity to really learn some skills that will make later in life much, much easier. They have an opportunity to meet other kids from all over the country, all over the world, um, and be exposed to a lot of things that normal high school and middle school age kids aren't. And um, it's just, it's a, it's a great experience if you kind of let it be a great experience and and focus on the positives of it. What level of value do you place on your year at Stanford? Oh, life-changing. Absolute life-changing. Because? Um, So I went kicking and screaming. I, you know, everybody in my generation turned pro between 14 and 16. I wanted to turn pro. My parents were adamant, you are not turning pro. Um, they both had gone to Stanford. They knew the education was important. Um, you know, you can get injured at any time. So they really, I mean, I think when I started at Stanford, I was ranked 85 or something in the world. So they. Number 85 in the world would never go to college today. Yeah. Never. No. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, that is, you know, so they definitely forced it a hundred percent. You know, I didn't have any money to get to my first tournament if, if I had wanted to turn pro. So going there, I think just being treated like a normal student, you know, back then, I'm not sure what it's like at Stanford then, but you know, we didn't, or now, but back then, you know, you didn't get to pick your freshman roommate. You're stuck in a dorm with, you know, somebody else is a golfer, somebody else is a concert pianist, somebody else, um, you know, started their own business doing something and you're just, you're thrown in and you are a normal person and you don't get any special treatment. If you want tutoring, there's the tutoring center and you can go sign up for it just like everybody else. There was no special meals. Um, So that was, you know, you just, you grow as a person tremendously. the tennis part was tough because I was coming from Bolitaries where I had 
you know, kind of unlimited amounts of coaching um, to going to a college team at the time. And we didn't have an assistant coach really that year. So, you know, the coach would hand you a can of balls and say, okay, go on court four and, you know, see you in a couple hours. So it was difficult for my tennis, especially technically, um, I would say, but the amount that I learned, the, you know, the, the responsibility um, piece of it was huge. There was nobody there to do anything for me. You're forced to play a lot more doubles. That helped my singles tremendously. Um, but I definitely struggled with the balance of the academics and the tennis. I, that year there, I really felt like I didn't do either well. I felt like they both suffered a little bit. Um, the summer after my freshman year, I did very well. And so obviously it had done something right. And I think I was ranked 25 after the U.S. Open. So then I did, um, I did turn pro. But um, yeah, I met my future husband there, the friends that I made there, uh, the, you know, the education alone was, it, it was, I think it was probably after about a month that I called my parents and said, thank you. Wow. Good for you. So, yeah, it was, it was definitely, they, it was definitely the right decision. Um, you know, and the, I think by delaying when I started, they actually gave me more years on the end because all of my friends who turned pro between 14 and 16, they were all, not all of them, most of them, probably 75% of them were finished by the age of 19 to 20. And they were finished with burnout injuries um, or else their games, they started too young and the game, their game just wasn't fully developed. They, you know, they were just counter puncher baseliners. So their game didn't translate well enough into the pros long-term, but by me waiting, I was bigger, I was stronger. I was able to do the schedule, the travel, um, and my game was a little bit more developed. So I was able to play 11 years where my, most of my peers played four to five at the most. Wow. I mean, that right there is a huge testament to taking that year and going to Stanford, yeah. right? I mean, well, oh, and now I think it's nowadays when you can go back to places and have your scholarship and everything else, that is the best insurance policy you will ever ask for. Mm-hmm. The best. And for people to not take advantage of that, I think is, is just not a wise it's not a wise decision. And if you start out on the tour too young or not necessarily too young, but where your ranking is too low, you can get stuck and you get stuck between that 150 and 300 range. It's tough to get out of it. You need to get through that area as quickly and possibly as you can. If you get stuck in there and you, and if you're ranked 150 in the world on the women's side, you are not earning a living. Right. I mean, you might be paying your bills, but you, you're not earning and saving um, the way you should be when you, you know, when you go out and start work. So you are much better off taking that insurance policy for a year. You know, and if you look back at it, I don't know of one person that I've ever talked to that has ever regretted going to school or going that year to school or two years or whatever it was. But you will come across zillions of people who say, yeah, I should have gone to school. 
Interesting. Wow. I'm a huge proponent of college tennis. I think it's, you know, one of the best things about tennis or should be one of the best things about tennis, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm always thrilled when I hear of these young phenoms choosing to go for at least a year. Yeah. Uh, It makes me a little sad when they bypass it, but uh, it's, it's not my place to make Nakashima go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And he had a great year. Yep. He had a great year. And guess what? He wasn't the best player in college tennis this year, but he was, he was really good and he, you know, did very well. Um, And I, I think, you know, that's all often a humbling experience for some of these kids who are considering. I I mean, I played, I went my year at Stanford. I didn't play number one, you know, we had, Patty Fendick, we had a lot of other really good players there. Um, and it is, it, it's, it's that self-esteem gut check. You're like, well, what do you mean? I'm not the best. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ouch. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so it's, well, I'm glad that you did that year. And, um, oh, you know, I think it's, it's been so interesting to hear your story, Marianne, and I, you know, I've read it, but to actually kind of dig a little deeper into it with you and, and hear your thoughts on what we're doing right and what we need to do better in terms of junior tennis and helping our kids has just been super, super valuable. So thank you so much for doing the podcast and, and doing your blog. And I'll have links to that. Uh, in our show notes, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, right through the website. They can okay. email me right through there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. And thank you for, I mean, for everything you do, it just, I, I'm just a firm believer in all the stuff you do. And it's, I think, you know, the key to it for, for parents in tennis, or at least, I mean, even for me as a parent is it's just education. You know, we, we just need, we just need the information and um, no matter what part of parenting it is, I just, it, right. it has certainly made my journey easier. Fantastic. Well, thanks again. And to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast for tennis parents by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, I hope you'll share the podcast with your tennis community for all the information you need to navigate the junior and college tennis journey. Be sure to check out parentingaces.com.